1: All right, welcome. Uh, welcome to another holiday edition of Fearless uh, with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, and today we have a conversation I've been looking forward to, because we're gonna go in depth with the Korean Cosell, Steve Kim. You guys have obviously seen and enjoyed uh, Steve Kim on the show. He's been one of the uh, best additions to the show that that we've made. Uh, Steve is very passionate, very knowledgeable about all the issues related to sports. On top of that, he's extremely clever. His knowledge of hip hop and history, his movie and TV show references and musical references, the guy's just clever. That's why I call him the Korean Cosell Uh, He's a natural broadcaster. Obviously, he specializes in boxing, but uh, we're gonna spend some time today getting to know uh, Steve Kim a little bit more in depth, kind of get his backstory uh, to see, you know, his backstory is anything like Shamika Michelle's. Remember when we sat down with Shamika Michelle and she told us about shooting somebody? I wonder if Steve Kim... (laughs) I don't think that's true Steve Kim, but uh, Steve Kim, uh, welcome to this holiday edition of uh, Fearless with Jason Whitlock and today's going to be Fearless with Steve Kim. We want to know about you and so let's start with something very easy. Where did you grow up? You got brothers and sisters, your mom and dad still married. I know you, you immigrated here. or you, you weren't a natural citizen at first. Anyway, give us some of your
0: backstory as a child. Yes, yeah, so let's go all the way back. I was actually born in Seoul, Korea, spent the first year of my life there. My father, uh, who, who passed away about five years ago, made the decision to take himself and uh, my mother to America. He went there first for about a year got a job, earned some money, and I came here in 1973. So so I make it very clear. So for about 99% of my life, I've been in this great country. And so when people say, what are you, in terms of ethnicity or race or culture, I always say, I am an American Korean. I make that distinction very clear. I'm not Korean American because I don't ever plan on going back to the 38th parallel, Pusan or Seoul. I am an American Korean, and I'm very proud of it. And then the first thing that I really remember about my childhood, as you start to gather your first memories, was my mom and dad moved us to Valencia, California, which is about an hour from Los Angeles, a very white, upper-middle-class suburb in Southern California, best known for Bunny Love Carrots and Magic Mountains, from about 1978 to 1986, I lived there And it was a very nice community, very good people. I'd say it's about 99.5% white, Uh, didn't have a lot of issues, grew up around great people, made friends. And there's probably three or four other Asian families. I think one Mexican family that I knew of was a classmate of mine. And there's about three black families. But I'll be honest with you. It wasn't this horrifying experience that a lot of people will tell you growing up around an exclusive white enclave. Then we moved to Montebello, California in March of 1986. My family started a restaurant out here in Montebello, California, which is called the Bel Air of East L.A., Uh, according to Oscar de la Hoya and his brother, who once they moved their parents with their professional winnings to that city, it was like a landmark for a lot of Mexicans. And so that's where it really began, um, where I started to notice the ethnicities and the racial makeups of Southern California. And Jason, I can tell you this. It's interesting. When I first went to Montebello, the first school that I went to in the middle of my eighth grade year was a school called Lamerset Intermediate. And it's the first time in my life. And I was about, what, 13, 14 years old that I had been around so many Mexicans. I was like, wow, there's a lot of Mexicans here. You never would know that from living in Valencia. And but I tell you what was real interesting and ironic. There was actually a pretty good amount of Asians in this particular zip code in that school. Over time, I was more comfortable around being the one Asian among a lot of Mexicans than being around a lot of Asians, which I've always found interesting. Um, after that, I had a choice: living in Racket Mountain, Montebello, which was kind of like the rich suburban area of that city, to either go to Sure High School or Montebello High School. Now, this was interesting. Most of the Asian parents pushed their kids if they had a choice to go to Sure because that was more or less the Asian high school. Montebello was known more as the Mexican high school. Uh, but I told my mother and father, hey, look, I just moved here. I've just started to make friends three, four months into this process. I would much rather go to Montebello with a lot of my classmates at La said. They allowed me to do it. And Jason, I could say to this day, as I look back on it, it's the greatest decision I ever made was going to Montebello because I've made lifelong friends. And that school is very interesting, Jason. Once again, that school is about 97% Hispanic, Latino slash Mexican. There was probably about 50 Asians, maybe about 100 Armenians. And it was a great place to go to school. One of my fondest memories. In fact, my office in Montebello, East L.A. is about three blocks from that school. So I drive by it a lot and always brings a smile to my face. After I graduated high school, this is when the journey really began into broadcasting and journalism Went to Cal State L.A. for about a year and a half. It didn't work out. The tuition rose. My parents actually got a divorce after my senior year of high school. The business didn't work out. But I still very, very fond memories of my childhood. Even though I come from a uh, parents that were divorced, I got 18 years out of it. They raised me very well, gave me discipline, gave me some ethical and moral guidelines that I live by to this day and a strong work ethic, which is probably the strongest trait that I have. And then I kind of floated around doing factory jobs, working for RPS, UPS. Um, And then finally, the biggest thing that really led me into this profession was there was a radio show hosted by Dave Smith and Joey Heim. They were called the Sports Gods, and they were this racy, renegade duo that would say anything. They were like the Howard Stern of radio. I ended up calling every day. For about 100 days over the summer of 1995, they started calling me the Cal Ripken of the show. It became a gag. And finally, they said, hey, if you want to get into this, why don't you become an intern? You don't have to go to college. You can learn the radio business from the inside out. And that's really where the process began. And now I'm here on Fearless, Jason. That, that's the short, abridged Cliff Notes version of the Steve Kim story. hold, hold on. <laughs> Steve Kim never returned to college? No. No, I, I, I'm like a Kentucky Wildcat basketball player. I was basically one and done. I, I have to be honest. I was a very mediocre student. That was a joke in Montebello High School. I was the worst Asian student, except it's not a joke because it was probably true. My, my GPA hovered much closer to the 3.0 range than the 4.0 range. So a lot of the teachers would joke with like, Steve, if you ever took your head out of that Sports Illustrator, that sports page, you could probably be valedictorian. But that's not what I really wanted to be uh, in my life. I, I look back at it and my lack of discipline from an academic standpoint probably stemmed from the fact that my parents had to work at the restaurant all the time. And I was left to be alone for the most part to be a latchkey kid. And I'll be frank. I loved it. It was great. (laughs) I had fun. I became really Americanized. I fell in love with sports. That was, that became my passion. I probably let my parents down in a lot of ways. I do admit, but when it's all said and done, I I look back at the journey that I've taken and and I wouldn't change anything. I I think everything worked out the um, way it should.
1: Corey, I don't know if you're listening, but Steve Kim just basically said that his 3.0 grade point average made him the worst Asian student. And and if I had had a 3.0, my parents would have the plaque up in their house right now. I'd be, you know, I'd be akin to Einstein, uh, so <laughs> my grade point average hovered around a 3.0. I was embarrassed. I got a 1,200 on the SAT. Oh, I was <laughs> I only scored you know, twice as well as you, Jason, on the SAT.
0: <laughs> well, well, Jason, but I didn't have your genetics to play Division I football. It, it, all, it all evens out, but you know, I look back at all my Asian friends um, that they all wanted to do some really great things in life, be doctors and lawyers and run businesses. Honestly, from an early age, and this started in Valencia, California, probably around the age of 11 or 12, I wanted to cover sports, and I wanted to be a sports writer. I didn't really think about broadcasting at that point, but some of my fondest memories, Jason, and I'm sure you went through something like this and whatever you wanted to be, but every Wednesday... When that Sports Illustrated uh, magazine would come in that mailbox, it was like the greatest day, and I would just tear through those magazines. I still have some of them in my office that I have in uh, Montebello, but that was the goal. A lot of other kids wanted to be doctors and lawyers and do important things. I wanted to be a little bit different, and I also think my upbringing, given the fact that my parents weren't there a lot, it probably led to this road that I went on.
1: It's, it's funny, Steve. My grandmother, uh, Mama Lovey, Lovey Kennedy, got me a subscription to Sports Illustrated when I was a kid, and it, it literally probably the most memorable Christmas gift I've yeah. ever received. She'd renew it every year, and that was sometime in the late '70s, I believe. Or, yeah, late 1970s. And then I had a best friend or a buddy that had this Sports Illustrated collection that probably covered the late 1960s all the way through the 70s. And he had, you know, cause he had subscriptions long before I did. And I remember him giving me his Sports Illustrated collection. And I would make these trips back and forth from <laughs> his apartment to my apartment. And which was, you know, probably like 500 yards separating his building from mine. But and I around my bedroom, there was nothing but Sports Illustrated stacked along the wall and from the floor up to about two or three feet tall. And I used to I mean, I read back issues of Sports Illustrated that my whole childhood was just me reading the new Sports Illustrated or old Sports Illustrated. I'm devastated now. I can't remember in what move in adult life where I said, "Man, I got to give up these Sports illustrates, but I, I, I authentically regret it. Uh, so yeah, reading Sports Illustrates and it maybe out in California you got them on Wednesdays, in Indianapolis we got ours on Thursdays, and it was a really big deal. And it had a, and the other thing, Steve, I got to say that's uh, similar is I called a local radio show as a kid. <laughs> 11, 12, 13 years old, virtually every day. Got Bob Lamey, who I think is still the voice of the Indianapolis Colts. At one time, he was the voice of the Pacers. He hosted a local radio show. And that's who, as a kid, I would call his show to talk Pacers. I'll never forget when the Pacers, whatever year the Pacers drafted Stuart Gray. I was livid and irate about it and got in a big <laughs> argument with Bob Lamey about it. You remember Stuart Gray? I think he played at UCLA. He played at UCLA. I you
0: remember that. His claim to fame was outplaying Patrick Ewing in one of these camps, and, and his career never developed. He was this big, lumbering white guy. You know, I was such a big sports freak and that what I would do at Montebello High School, and everyone knew I did it. Montebello High School is in the heart of Montebello off of Whittier Boulevard, And so if you walk five minutes to Whittier Boulevard, right across the street from our school was a Johnson's Market, a supermarket. And I would go and grab a dollar bill, exchange it for four quarters, and I would get the LA Daily News, I'd get the Herald Examiner, and the LA Times, and I would pour, and I'll admit, it went from the sports section to the comic section and to the calendar section to see what was on TV, and the rest of the newspaper I would just discard and give to the teachers, So this is one of the most memorable moments of my Montebello High School life. It's November 3rd or the 4th, one of those days. I put the quarter for the Herald-Examiner, which had my favorite writer, a gentleman by the name of Doug Krikorian, who I've gotten to know. He was one of my idols in terms of this field. And I still remember looking at the newspaper and said, goodbye, everybody. And it turned out it was their last issue. The newspaper had closed down one of the saddest days of my life because that was an incredible paper. Those are the memories that I really have growing up.
1: All right, so what was your first job? You did the internship
0: at the radio show. Yeah. What was next? Okay, so the radio station that I was on was a short-lived FM station with Dave Smith and uh, Joey Heim, who to this day, I, I thank them because they helped launch my career. I am really grateful for the contributions they made. That was at KMAX 107.1, lasted about a year and a half. They ended up taking their show to extra 690 and 1150 in Los Angeles, which at that point had just picked up the Los Angeles Dodgers rights. They had talked to everyone, despite their renegade background and their reputation, that, hey, we should be the night show. And I was part of their team. And they said, Steve, if you want to come along, you could read the updates, you could have certain segments, and you can keep cutting your teeth in the business. That was in the fall or spring Spring of 1997 is when I really began. It was right about that time, Jay, when I, at the very end of K-Max, that a pair of gentlemen came up to me by the name of Tim Abrams and Oscar Valdez who said, hey, uh, we like your voice. You're doing some stuff here at this station. Do you know anything about boxing? And I said, yeah, I'm a boxing fan. Uh, I grew up as the last generation that got to see fights on weekends consistently on the major networks. And I said, yeah, I actually know boxing quite well. And they said, well, we're doing a gambling show based around boxing. We can pay you a couple hundred dollars per show. Um, if you want to be the co-host, you got the show. Now, this is funny, Jay. They act the guy. One of the guys, Oscar Valdez, he had vending machines. That was his living. So every week I do the show, he would give me <laughs> 10 rolls of quarters and that'd be 250 bucks. And I have to go around various liquor stores (laughs) exchanging quarters for like paper money. That's something I'll never forget. And that's how my boxing career began. And then while at extra 690 or 1150, the Dodgers flagship station, in addition to doing these sports updates for the sports gods, I was able to do a weekend boxing show from about 1997 to 1999. Uh, things didn't work out at the station because I thought I was being hemmed in as just a, an update guy. And I didn't really want to be there five, six days a week in a row reading off scores. This is when things really took a turn for the better, Jay. Thankfully, Al Gore invented the Internet. OK, and these guys by the name of Gary Randall, Doug Fisher, who was a dear friend to this day, said, Steve, we're doing this thing called a website." And I said, what the hell is a website? He said, what's this thing that you kind of do, and we're going to cover boxing? It's like a magazine, but without paper. And if you want to join our team, we could pay you. Now, I'll be honest, Jay. I said to myself, um, I I didn't tell them, but I said to myself, yeah, I'll take your money, but this internet thing's not going to last. But if it's a paycheck, I'll take it. (laughs) We ended up doing a website called House of Boxing. They made a business deal that didn't involve me. They broke off, and then we all ended up doing a thing called Max Boxing. And everyone thought it was Max Kellerman's website had nothing to do with him. But from about 2001 to 2013, I was there. And that's when I really developed my reputation as, quote, unquote, a boxing media guy. Max Boxing. And so were you
1: part of the ownership of Max Boxing or you just was a writer?
0: I was a part of the ownership and we had some good years. We had some bad years. I've always said I got paid an experience uh, and the fringe benefits Uh, I was able to carve out a living. But, you know, you know how we really made a lot of money in the beginning, Jay, was that we we were able to gain access to certain fighters, training camps, going into gyms and we'd get footage. And this is just back when this is like 20 years ago. You know, the video wouldn't come in good, but we were able to film training sessions and other things related to boxers, do interviews on camera. And we had a membership area, which was very successful for about two years. Unfortunately, there's this thing called YouTube, and then everyone was able to, number one, steal our material, pirate our material, or do their own material, and then we became the VHS. <laughs> everyone else's DVD. So, you know, that, that, that really, at the end, I was looking to get out. And then in 2014, there was this other site called UCN Live. I bounced around there, did some other freelance stuff. And then I was able to get to ESPN for a short-lived two years. And now I'm here. It's been a long road. Boxing has been a very important part of my career and life. It's something that is in my DNA. But I do find myself, Jay, as I do stuff for you guys and other entities, that uh, I'm always going to be in boxing. I'll always appreciate the sport. I'll certainly always enjoy the people around it. But I'm not going to be that full-fledged 24-7, 365 boxing guy as I had been before.
1: So, the other thing I think that you've kind of been asleep at the wheel on is you're just a natural broadcaster. One of the most natural I've, I've ever been around. And because I, I, I don't know how much training you've had at it or whatever, but you know how to speak in sound bites, you know how to pack information and humor and points. Into your sound bites, I, I, I to me I, I don't I know you did the writing thing with Max Boxing and you did it at ESPN, but I think you and others have been asleep. But like, this guy is born to be a broadcaster, a, a general
0: sports broadcaster. Do, do you agree with that? You know, I'd like to, and I, I've actually done my share of broadcasting for various shows on, um, you know, local promotions and boxing, some stuff that's actually been on major networks. But I think there's an issue here, Jay, and this is, it did become a little bit frustrating. You're not rewarded for being honest. You are supposed to really toe a party line. And I no longer after my experience at ESPN and seeing how that culture works and seeing it from the belly of the beast, I don't ever want to be involved in legacy corporate media because basically you are Pinocchio to their Geppetto. You are a puppet and you're only allowed to say certain things. I'm an outspoken the guy. I only know one way to do this. And, and I've said this for a while. The days of Larry Merchant, who was one of my mentors. There's a guy that I truly respect and admire are over. They will never allow that again. So that's why I like being on platforms such as yours and this fine franchise that we're growing because I believe we are needed. We're not necessarily accepted yet, but the bottom line is they want people that they can control. They want beige spots on a beige wall and they want party lines towed. And I simply didn't really want to play that game. Have you always been that way when I was a little
1: (laughs) kid, even in conversations (laughs) with my family I was always really outspoken and really honest and not politically correct. I'll never forget, like, I was 10, 11 years old at a family Thanksgiving dinner, and when it was all over and, you know, the adults were all getting liquored up, and uh, I remember standing in front of my family and saying, like, because my family, we we loved to gamble in my family, and my mom and, and... taught me how to gamble, pea shakes and all. We got these things called pea shake houses in Indianapolis when, when me and my brother were just little kids because, again, her father was involved with pea shake houses and the numbers and my father, and it's just like it's what we did. But I remember at a Thanksgiving, 10, 11 years old, saying to my family, hey, uh, why do we play the pea shakes and the numbers and white people play the stock market? <laughs> should, should we be playing the stock market? Is that better than the p shapes and 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 the numbers and, that's that's how i that's how I rolled as a little kid. I said things to adults that I probably shouldn't say, and I'm just wondering,
0: was that you as well? to a certain degree i I don't think with the adults that I really said anything that would have that record scratching sound like. Aah! like like you just did, but I tell you what influenced me uh, in, in terms of the way I cover sports and the way I deal with people now is that my idols outside of Tony Gwynn, Steve Garvey, Eric Dickerson, Michael Irvin, and probably Steve Garvey, those are the athletes that I really looked up to as a young child. I think they were very influential in my life in a lot of ways. But given the path that I went on, when you consistently read columnists like a Doug Krikorian or an Alan Malamud who had very strong opinions. Certainly a Bill Murray, brilliant wordsmith. Larry Merchant was someone that Jim I admired. Murray, from a, Jim Murray. Jim Murray. Excuse you me. Yeah, Bill, Bill Murray was Jim funny too. Murray. He influenced me, but in a different <laughs> way. You're right. The great Jim Murray. I'd read him every day. Um, TJ Simers, you're going to leave T.J. Simers out. Yes. Later in my life, I learned how to be the ultimate smartass and not give a damn from T.J. But there's also a guy that I used to listen to a sports radio was probably about 10 years behind New York in terms of its influence and how much airtime they would get. I don't know if you ever knew him, Jason, but he was a legend in L.A. His name was Joe McDonald, the big nasty And this guy was outspoken. He had unbelievable sources. He was not afraid to punch up or down. He'd get into battles. He had feuds. And listening to him, who eventually did the most iconic radio show ever in L.A. based on sports, the McDonnell Douglas Show with Doug Krikorian. Those three years listening to those two call out people, being funny, sometimes being profane, but making you laugh and entertaining you, That, to me, was the best college I can go to. And I believe that those people really influenced me. Now, I believe this, that if you want people to take you seriously, Jay, and I know you agree with me on this, just the way you are, I don't really care about you liking me at first or ever. I want you to respect me, that even if you don't like me personally, that if I put something on the byline or if I come on a show like this, I want you to know one thing. This is what I think. It's well thought out. I believe it. I'm not pandering to anybody, but you have to be honest. Because quite frankly, Jason, I think a lot of that is missing in today's coverage of sports, boxing, or anything.
1: Uh, only because I'm old, a little older than you, am I asking this question. But what connected us? How, how did, <laughs> did, did I see something you <laughs> tweeted or did you tweet something at me? What, what, what
0: connected me and Steve Kim? Okay, so I was probably still pretty young, but when you were on the sports reporters on ESPN, I remember thinking, man, this guy is pretty ballsy. I mean, this this guy is not towing the party line. And the first time we ever really interacted is when you made that Jeremy Lin joke where you said some woman's going to get the best 30 seconds of her life. I thought that was funny because I know it's not true, but I just thought that was funny. We should all have the ability to laugh at ourselves. And then I remember you had to apologize. I get it. And I I remember I dropped you a DM saying, "Uh, Jay, I actually thought that was pretty funny. Like us Asians, uh, there's no tears coming out of my slanted eyes. We're good. We we will live with this. It's funny. Let's ride it. And then you said, no, no, not really. And I think that's the first time that we ever connected. And then uh, for some reason, you followed me. And then I think we started DMing once in a while. And I think that's the beginning of this just beautiful relationship. (laughs) Uh, So I'm going to
1: fish here. This is probably an inappropriate question, but I want to ask. You just said you you saw me on the Sports Reporters. Do you ever remember reading any of my work at the Kansas City Star or ESPN?
0: Any of that stick with you? Yes, I, I remember when look, you were the guy that for the Chiefs coverage, the Derek Thomas, the tragic death. Um, but look, if Nas has Illmatic, you will always have your 2007 NBA All-Star column that at Las Vegas. I've tried to look for archives. I, I'm, it must be stuck in Al Capone's vault. I can't actually find the full article. When, when I read that, I, I was in awe. I was like, oh, my God. And I think that's when you were at AOL Sports or or some or Yahoo or something. And I, I remember reading that going, I, I, I can't believe that they allowed you to write it. Here's what I find interesting about that article, Jason. And you talk about liberal white guilt. Every time I search that article, there are actually blogs reacting to your column. And it's funny. Every white guy is like, oh, my God, I can't believe Jason Whitlock said that. But then there are a few black guys that say, yeah, yeah. Jason kind of nailed it. I've always thought that was the most fascinating part about that particular column.
1: Yeah, I think I was at AOL Sports. For some reason, I was thinking I was maybe at ESPN. Uh, But, but yeah, I was at AOL Sports. I had (laughs) left ESPN. And AOL Sports kind of went kaput, and they took my – there's so many places, like the Kansas City Star, foolishly, took my archives down. (laughs) Uh, it's some of the. It's arguably the greatest work ever done at that newspaper, and, and they took it down, that, which irritates me. AOL Sports. I don't know if there was any animus, but my archives are gone from there, and, and my archives at OutKick, they're gone. Uh, you know, people love to say I burn bridges. What what about the bridges that get burned on me?
0: Well, well, Jason, let's put it this way. Me and you are both General Sherman. We probably burned bridges. Look, I took pride in the fact and a lot of my archives at my past websites cannot be found. And I I was very proud of that work. I wish I would have at least printed them out. But as I look back specifically from my work from about 2000 to about 2015, I said things no one else would say. I, I was I battled HBO. I took on the biggest people. I said stuff no one else would say about Al Heyman and his influence in the game. I would criticize people to a point where Floyd Mayweather will not talk to me. They won't even uh, credential me for fights. And you know what? I take that as a badge of honor because I, because someone taught me one time. I think it was Ron Borges of the Boston Globe. He said, Steve, if someone doesn't want to talk to you, that's fine. I've had that happen. But you could always talk about them. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'm proud of it. I'm the ballsiest guy. And when people say, well, Steve, how come you're not doing as much as you were? I said, you know what? First of all, I've moved on. And second of all, I've done the heavy lifting for 15 years. Why didn't someone else take on uh, these giants? But literally, Jay, I was banned from HBO. I remember uh, when HBO was run by Ross Greenberg, the brilliant producer who was not a very good lead of that sports division. He hated me. Oh my God, the whole network hated me and was afraid of me. I've gotten into battles that were very public. Um, I've written stuff that's been used in court cases like the Manny Pacquiao, Murad Muhammad lawsuit. That stuff is very uncomfortable, but you gotta have a bit of a thick skin to do it. But when it's all said and done, I, I can honestly say with a clear conscience, I did my job. And so, did you say
1: Floyd Mayweather wouldn't, they would try not oh, yeah. to credential you to his fights?
0: Oh, yeah, I was Luther Campbell banned in the USA because I was the one guy. Look, this is this is the funniest thing. Floyd actually got mad at me because I quoted him correctly. Back in the year 2000, he turned down a 12 million dollar deal from HBO when it was run by Seth Abraham, who was a very influential figure. And so I'm at a fight. And this is when me and Floyd were actually pretty friendly. And Floyd basically said, I'm not fighting for 12. Y'all going to have to pay me. Uh-uh, not when you're giving Nassim Ahmed this, this and this. And this is when I was at Max Boxing. I made the mistake of actually quoting him correctly and using the quotes in context. In response, HBO pulled that offer. They rescinded the deal. And they said, OK, you're dead to us for about 15 minutes. Floyd got angry at me. And from that point on, he's never granted me an interview. He, I've never gotten access to him. And I still remember fights where they said, look, you're not going to get a credential. And I say, that's fine. Cause Jay, I actually think it empowers you because a lot of these journalists, not only in boxing, but in all realms, they acquiesce for access and they start becoming publicists. Cause they realize, Oh, if I say this, I may not get the exclusive. I ne- I may not be, al- be allowed behind the velvet rope. You know what? At this stage of my life, I don't even care. And it gives you a certain type of freedom to just let your hands go. But, yeah, uh, I- I'm not part of the money team, Jay. <laughs> not for a long
1: time. <laughs> you're not part of the money team. I didn't know that. <laughs> Floyd Mayweather. De- Golly. All right, Steve, I really appreciate the time. Hope you're having a great holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year.
0: Absolutely. And I want to say thank you to you for this opportunity and all of the Blaze Network and the Fearless Army. Hope everyone out there has a great holiday. All right. I think I hear Tomorrow playing. Merry Christmas. No negotiation, my system, no relation. We all just want to have freedom. Sitting on a corner, never been alone. i am breaking my back for
1: freedom. Bless, we are living, get back. We are receiving, all deceiving. We all want to be free. We want freedom. I just want, I want to be. I just want, I want to be. I just want, I want to be. I just, want, I wanna be. I just i